At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 i'm lauren sherman the writer behind puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet and i'd like to welcome you to my new show fashion people on every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. For my family. Okay, so... You're mad that I never podcast about you. Yes. This is a recording from Christmas Eve 2017. I found it saved on my phone a few months ago. My sister and I are at a Chinese takeout place near where I grew up in Florida. I was back home visiting for the holiday. I've never used the phrase podcast as a verb before like that. So if ever... I think it's the first like in history. No, people use the word podcast like that all the time, but it's I don't. You. Yeah. Why not? you think you would use it all the time. I guess I was going to say because I think I'm too good for that word. Too good for that word. That's the most New Yorker thing you've ever said in your entire life. I know, I know. Um, You're the real pretentious kind now, aren't you? Her name is Shannon. She's 19 here. I'm 28. For years, she'd been asking me to do a story about her. I've been making radio since I was her age, and I'd interviewed other family and friends for different things. I had talked about my brother's uncanny ability to win radio call-in giveaways and about my dad's year-long obsession with Sarah Palin. But I had never interviewed my sister. Like, if someone were stalking you and they're trying to figure out what your entire life is like based off your podcast, I would not exist in this life because you never say anything about having a sister. You talk about mom, dad, brother, and that's it. It's like I didn't exist. Of course, Shannon does exist, as much as the sesame chicken I was paying for exists, regardless of whether or not it's on a podcast. Which, I guess, now it is. Thank you. Have a nice night. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas. We walk out to Shannon's car, and she gets behind the wheel. And rather than use this moment with a recording device to interview her like she wants, I spend the next several minutes telling her why I can't. Like, there needs to be a reason for me to talk about you. Like, maybe we need to go on an adventure or something. Okay. We could do, choose to do something. We could be pen pals. We could write to each other. Pen pals. We need something where our relationship will grow or we'll overcome some challenges together. Like, there mm-hmm. needs to be some tension. Like, maybe Ooh. a thing we don't totally want to do, but then realize that there's more going on than we anticipated. My sister is charming. We're mostly kidding around. What? She learned to drive, But listening back now, I hear things very differently than I did at the time. Just a couple hours after this car ride, I'll get into a big fight with my mom and leave her house. And I'll spend the rest of Christmas Eve driving around town, smoking cigarettes, figuring out where to sleep for the night. After that, 
I won't go back home to Florida for a year and a half. It will also turn out that when I made this recording with Shannon, I was working on the story that would finally be about her. Sort of. It was the biggest, most complicated story I had ever stumbled into. It had plane hijackings and Broadway musicals and stolen cars. It had secrets and regrets and painful memories. It had a pet monkey. And all of it centered on this enigma of a man and a box containing the story of his life. It felt like the furthest thing from my sister or anyone in my family. But, you know, things didn't go the way I expected. And years of trying to understand this strange man's life would eventually lead me back home to try and save some of my most precious relationships from unraveling. Okay, let's keep hashing through ideas in a little bit. Okay, let's pause. It's kind of a long recording to keep on my phone. This is the story of the incredibly inelegant way I got there with the help of a dead guy that nobody liked. I'm Eric Mennel, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Part one, the box. The story of Matthew McGill's life is one of dramatic highs and very humbling lows. And somewhere in the middle is the story of a 30-year-long grudge over Sod. Hi. Hi, I'm looking for the Robertsons? Yep. Right spot? Right okay. spot. Eric. Hi, Eric. I'm Elaine. Elaine, nice to meet you. Clifton. Clifton, nice to meet you. Cliff and Elaine Robertson are in their 60s. They live in a ranch-style home near the town of Woodbine, Georgia, a short drive from the Florida border near the coast. It's almost 90 degrees when I visit. Somehow both mosquito season and allergy season. (sighs) Cliff wears blue jeans and a white t-shirt, like he's just paused his yard work to come in and talk with me. Elaine is in a nice floral print top, and she putters around the kitchen for most of my visit. I was born in Woodbine, and I've lived in this county my entire life. We've been married 45 years. 42. (laughs) We've been married 42 years. July 4th will be 43 years. Rounding up isn't so bad if you have to round up or down. No, no, no. I'm a numbers person. It's it's got to be exact. (laughs) This is how they are, Cliff and Elaine. Cliff says something very pleasant and mostly true, and then Elaine corrects him very pleasantly. We built this home in 1985 and moved in at 1986. At the time, Cliff and Elaine had just finished building their house, but the property around it was still a mess, which is how they met Matthew McGill. Nothing but a dirt yard here, and I wanted four pallets of sod just to put around the perimeter of the house to give people something to brush their feet off on. And Mr. McGill at that time had a nursery, and I went to him and asked about buying some sod. In 1988, Matthew was new to the area. Woodbine is a speed trap town on the Georgia-Florida border that, honestly, does not get a lot of new people. Back then, the population was about 1,200. Today, the population is about 1,400. So when Matthew McGill showed up nearby and opened an exotic plant nursery, he stood out. For one, because he was new, but also... He was a very healthy man. He was a hunk. Well-built. Well-built. Broad-shouldered. He was a nursery owner that looked like a movie star. Over six feet tall, about 230 pounds, dirty blonde hair. He carried himself well. I mean, he was always neatly dressed. 
he would be more presentable than myself. And fittingly, Matthew's nursery was beautiful too. Or healthy, I guess you could say. All sorts of exotic plants perfectly arranged in these complicated geometric shapes. Ground cover plants, different hedge plants, and pottery, and trees. And there was like paths through the plants. He knew how to set up a nursery that was attractive to the public. Someone told me it looked more like a botanic garden than a nursery. It was impressive. That's all we knew about him at that time. So Elaine asked Matthew to come over and give an estimate for the sod. And that's when the trouble started. All I wanted was a buffer zone between the house and the dirt. He wanted me to build a yard, put in irrigation, put down pipe, felt, weed guard. He had went into all that spill about all these layers you had to do. He was pushy about the idea. Was up into almost $10,000, and I'm like, listen, we're not spending $10,000 on this yard. We just want to put some grass down. Getting fed up, Cliff asked Matthew. Are you going to sell me some sod? And Matthew says... He couldn't guarantee it if he didn't install it, and it had to be installed properly, and that meant all the irrigation systems. And wasn't my cup of tea. And he said, well, the best thing you can do is get in your truck and leave. <laughs> Not so nicely. <laughs> this is an odd thing that people around town would come to learn about Matthew McGill. He didn't actually like to sell his plants. When people would come to buy, he was more interested in how what they were going to do with it, and he was to sell it to them. Check, check, check. I'm sorry, what's your name? Jerry Lloyd. I met Jerry Lloyd in the Woodbine Post Office with a friend of his. When Jerry's daughter was getting married several years back, he arranged to buy some plants from Matthew for the wedding. The day before the ceremony, Jerry went to the nursery to pick them up. And then I went to get them and said, nah, I'm not changing my mind. Man, the wedding's tomorrow. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you can take them, but I'll just charge you half and you can bring them back to me. He charged you half for the plants, and then you, you rented and basically took the plants back after the wedding? He never really wanted to sell his plants. He grew them and thought about selling them, but really didn't sell them. He didn't sell them. He was attached to them. It was strange. And slowly, Matthew developed a reputation. Not just for being a jerk, but for being a cheat. And people would tell you, you know, watch out for him. Don't get involved with him. Which is exactly what Cliff and Elaine tried to do after the side incident. Stay away from Matthew McGill. I never pursued to meet him again. I didn't care for him, his attitude. He never was a person of my interest. Of course, these things have a way of coming back around. North Florida is timber country. I grew up here, and there are things you learn to notice about the landscape that vacationers miss. Like when you're driving down the highway and you look out the car window and suddenly realize all of the pine trees, what look like forests, are actually aligned in perfect rows because they were planted that way years ago to make them easier to chop down and turn into pulp. I'm driving about 20 miles south of Woodbine to a town just over the state line a very small town with a very big name, Kings Ferry. Hi, Ed. It's where I meet Ed Libby. Hey. Ed's daughter is a friend of mine. She and I used to be coworkers and neighbors. We bonded over growing up in Florida and both being adults with parents who were divorcing. She told me once that her dad had a wild story about a guy he knew through work, and that if I got in touch, he could spend hours telling me about it. 
So I did. And now, oh, it was great. Here I am. Great to meet you finally. Yeah. For years, Ed ran a plant nursery on this property, the same property that his family has lived on for generations. Wait till you get my age. You got to stop and figure everything out. Yeah. But you can't <laughs> One day in the early 90s, Ed was driving his truck on the other side of the Georgia border. He would pass through pretty frequently, delivering plants to other smaller nurseries. As I was driving through that area, I happened to see this new nursery that opened. From his truck, Ed could see the owner tending the plants. He was big and very healthy, wearing a large straw hat. It looked like a a good potential customer. So I just stopped and gave him my sales pitch such as it was. The man introduced himself as Matthew McGill. Now, Ed Libby is a smart guy. He has degrees in political science and government. He spends his free time reading about market theory and history. He quoted Plato to me over dinner. But he lives alone in rural Florida, and there isn't a ton of variety in his days. Then he met Matthew. He had a lot of interesting stories to tell, and I appreciated that. I, I, I like to hear stories, you know. So occasionally, Ed would stop by Matthew's nursery on business, and Matthew would tell him stories about where he had supposedly come from, what he claimed his life was like growing up, well before Woodbine. He told me he was shipped off at an early age. During some of his teen years, he spent time in Peru with his grandfather, who was the Minister of Agriculture for Peru. Was he Peruvian? No. Matthew had lots of stories about wild adventures. He crossed the Atlantic in a small sailboat by himself. He, t- he told me he was doing some modeling, you know. He got some gigs with Vitalis. One of them involved going upstate New York and, and jumping off the, uh, the ski jump. Uh, and apparently performed it flawlessly. It's a little hard for me to believe that. Matthew said he used to be a Broadway actor. He told me the first show he got in was, was Camelot. He said he had been roommates with Rune Arledge, the guy who created Monday Night Football. The other roommate was Christopher Walken. He told me that um, he helped walk and get his first big job. What a good guy. (laughs) This is his story. If you talked to Matthew long enough, you'd get the impression he was a sort of cosmopolitan, more after-hours version of Forrest Gump. He told me he got selected as an escort one time for Miss America. I forget the name of the director of Apocalypse Now. He also married an actress, a Broadway actress. She was a leading lady. He mentioned Gregory Peck, Formula One racing. He had his own car. Ed heard so many of these stories. And of course, they were intriguing, but also hard to believe. A bunch of big fish stories. Matthew ran a plant nursery, and he ran it badly. He didn't seem to have any friends or family. He was the furthest thing from a globe-trotting, culture-hopping American scion. It seemed impossible, or worse. Some people off and on would tell me that there were some problems associated with him. And I was always a little wary of him because... You, you learn to recognize people who have a little bit of con in them, and he was that. He did not advertise in any conventional manner. He didn't have a sign in front of his business. He didn't pay taxes. He wanted to remain completely out of sight. He was underground. Underground. 
When I first heard about Matthew McGill, about five years ago, almost nothing about him turned up online. There was only one real mention of him. It was on this website, Topics.com, which, at the time, was a forum for small-town news and gossip. Under a thread titled, Who Runs the Landscape Shop in Woodbine? There were about a dozen comments, all of them written between August 2008 and February 2015. I was at Stan's this weekend and noticed the landscape shop on Highway 17. I thought I recognized the fellow watering plants, but was not sure. Could someone tell me who owns this outfit? Thank you, Gary. And from the comments, it was obvious. People around town did not trust this guy. I only know him as Matthew, and I think I spelled his name wrong. That man is a terrible person. Stay away. You do not do justice to what a horrible person he is. Ask some locals about him. Signed, Tommy K. Tommy K, what do you know? Tell us all. I worked for him, and he was an arrogant, drunken scumbag. He does have a nice nursery. Signed, Mitzi. So what, Mitzi? The man named Matt is an awful man. Stay away. Wow, this dude sounds bad. What's his name? What's Matthew's last name? I believe it's McGill or McGill. I knew he was hiding from something. And he always expressed it as uh, he was a person who just valued his privacy a great deal and didn't want to have anything to do with the government. But I, I always suspected, of course, it was something, something more than that. And Ed was right. It was something more than that. It's after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I was going up to the dollar store one day, and I just happened to notice this man walking. It was 2015, more than 20 years since Elaine and Cliff Robertson had tried, unsuccessfully, to buy some sod from Matthew McGill. Said goodbye, wanting nothing more to do with him. And now, here Elaine was, driving to the store, when she saw this guy she didn't recognize. Bent over, walking with a cane, 
with white rubber boots on. And I'm thinking, who is that? She got to the store, went inside. And before long, the guy walked in too. When I got to see him straight in the face, I could tell it was Matthew. And I mean, he was had lost that strong, athletic-looking, built physique. And he had lost like 70 pounds. And I asked, what in the world happened to you? And he had told me he had had a stroke. What did you think when you saw that? I'm like, my goodness. It just amazed me how you can go from being so healthy and fit to being barely able to walk. It was sad. I just felt sad for him. Matthew McGill was sick and still a grump. The person who owned his home and nursery had kicked him out. He was functionally homeless. Uh, he was willing to sleep in the woods. Had a tarp he put up. It was a tarp. He didn't even have a tent. He had a tarp. You see people sleeping out in the wild. That's how he. That was just his lifestyle. Eventually, he moved into an abandoned trailer down the street from the Robertsons. No AC, no heat. The house that he stayed in was not really livable to most standards because it had mold in it, and it also was mildewed very badly. It had leaking roofs. Uh, Basically, in the master bathroom is where he made his perch. And it's at this point, decades after swearing off Matthew, that the Robertsons did an about-face. Did something nobody else in town was much interested in doing. Rather than stay away from Matthew McGill, they tried to help him out. See, the Robertsons are churchgoers, and they live out their values with the people around them. Help thy neighbor, all that. We offered to give him a bed to sleep on so that he didn't have to sleep on the floor. I had been praying for the Lord to lead me someone in my life that I could help. I never had an idea it would be Matthew McGill, but that's who it was. Uh, I was determined not to let him drive me away. And slowly, Matthew got closer with the Robertsons. He'd go over to their house several times a day. He set up a little office in our garage, and he spent hours and hours on the computer. He had a little radio he toted with him. Listened to PRN. Is that a radio talk show? NPR. NPR. He had that radio going on NPR all the time. (laughs) But within a few months, Cliff noticed Matthew was deteriorating even more. I knew his health was going down. He had heart issues, he had lung issues, he had a hernia that was big as a football. He had a lot going on in his body that was killing him. And it wasn't just Matthew's body. He was having terrible nightmares too. He saw it as uh, like the demons were after him. We had people chasing him. He he talked about people chasing him and um, torturing him. And when he would talk about them the next day, it was like very real, very real. He was like, or to him it was. Cliff says that for weeks, he tried to get Matthew to go to the hospital, but he refused. And then one day, while Cliff and Elaine were away, Matthew overheated, badly. He was having trouble breathing, and so he called for help. He called 911, and they came. And and that day, someone told me he was almost naked out there. I think at one point he may have been naked with the water hose trying to cool himself off. He was actually sitting on the golf cart waiting for them to come get him because he couldn't get up and move. He went his last mile. If they had not gotten him in the hospital that evening, he'd have died right here in my yard. Matthew gave the Robertsons a phone number to call, 
a guy he said was his brother. Well, Lane did talk to his brother to let him know that what he actually needed was help. Were they willing to help him in any way, manner, fashion, or form to get medical help that he needed? And they wasn't really willing to do anything for him. You know, we've had people that, why do you, why do you help him? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Well, because he has no one else to help him. Matthew McGill died in the hospital just a week or so later, on November 3rd, 2015. There was no obituary. One thing I'll often say to people about growing up in Florida is that almost nothing here is what it appears to be at first glance. A million-dollar home whose walls don't actually meet at the seams. A pine tree forest laid out in perfect rows. Everything here comes with a veneer, an outward confidence hiding a more fragile interior, a sort of perpetual spray tan. You have to decide how closely you want to look at something, how much you really want to know what's going on under the surface. I talked to my friend's dad, Ed Libby, for several hours my first time in Kings Ferry. And the whole time, there was a box sitting in the corner of the room. It was one of those heavy-duty, blue plastic Sterilite bins, like you'd keep in your garage to store tools or something. It's a big tub. It's a little beat up, like it's been tossed around for years. <sighs> After he told me everything he knew about Matthew, Ed leaned to his left and slid the box between us. He had this look on his face like a kid who had quietly brought a tarantula to show and tell. Like he knew what he was about to show me was good. His papers fell into my hands, and, and I became aware of why he had been so desirous of, of his privacy, you know. When Matthew moved to that abandoned trailer, he asked Ed to hold on to some of his stuff, about a pickup truck's worth. Most of it seemed like junk. There were a bunch of shells, some antique cameras, abstract artwork. But there was also the stuff in this box. Ed cracks it open, and immediately the whole room fills with the smell of a used bookstore. These are just old letters from his father to his mother. Hmm. Inside is the bulk of what is left of Matthew McGill's life. Letters, journals, marriage certificates, death notices, cartoons, books, photographs. I guess he was into ballooning too, why not? Hot air balloons, that's amazing. There are songbooks from famous musicians, daguerreotypes of what seemed to be old family members, newspaper articles. This was uh, the eulogy at his father's funeral. Pages and pages of material. It's a time capsule filled with an incredibly intimate look at Matthew McGill and generations of his family. Sitting here with Ed, looking at this stuff, it starts to become clear. Matthew's impossible stories, the tales of adventure and wealth and suspense, they might be true. He's just like writing and writing and writing everything. Yeah. There's so much writing here. These are just lists of cars. By all appearances, Matthew actually lived this wild life. But nobody believed him. And somehow, he died alone, with almost nothing to his name. Okay, this is the good stuff. Why? This was his apartment after he had been raided. Raided by the police? Yeah. Uh, he had changed his name. And the answer, it turns out, is that Matthew's name was not Matthew at all. His original name was Dora Watkins. 
and he changed it to Matthew McGill because he was running from federal officials. Running from federal officials after getting caught up in an international conspiracy to steal luxury cars. And inside the box, a single cassette tape from the 1980s, a recording of Matthew's voice where he describes the entire debacle. The warrant was served and executed in a 10-man armed raid at our home. Two completely innocent people whose innocence was well known and acknowledged by this agent when he said during the raid, if you don't work with me, you don't work with anyone. He's telling his story. It's a strange story to me. It's a story of somebody who starts with every advantage and ends up with nothing. No money, no friends, no family. That day, Ed tells me to take the box. He thinks there's something more here. Maybe I can fill in the blanks. I put the box in the trunk of the car. I drive to the airport in Jacksonville and lug it from the parking garage to the baggage check. The woman at the counter puts a label on the box and weighs it, 42 pounds. She moves it to a conveyor belt where it slowly disappears and is loaded into the belly of a plane. The flight back to New York is about three hours long. Plenty of time to just stare out the window and think. How does someone wind up like Matthew, so disconnected? How do you go from being part of a wealthy, all-American family to dying alone in the woods? How do you destroy those bonds? What bridges do you have to burn? All of those answers, I think, are in the blue plastic box, stowed amongst people's sweaters and socks and oversized toiletries somewhere below my feet. The plane touches down in New York, I pick up the box from baggage claim, and I grab a cab home. Maybe it's hubris, but I feel certain. I'm ready to dig in. I'm ready to understand what happened to Matthew McGill. Stay Away from Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank with editing help from Lisa Pollock. Special thanks to Sophie Bridges, Inga Rickford-Angwin, and Brianna Garrett. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown, production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney and Josephina Francis at Cadence 13. 
Voice acting by Kevin Shuring, Brian Kim, Maria Briggs, Susan Myberg, and Dan Caffrey. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media. Thanks to Pat Walters, Caitlin Kenny, and Alex Bloomberg for their time and resources. Original scoring by Blank Forms and Blue Dot Sessions. Our credit music on the cusp is by the band Any Kind. Stay Away From Matthew McGill is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge the entire series right now, exclusively, on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey is home to all the podcasts, music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play.